visit the Downtown Den, join us through our website, all the W's, downtowninbusiness.com. Stay in, stay safe, visit the Downtown Den. Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Downtown Den, and we are, are going to be joined any moment now. In fact, just by magic, the shadow, recently announced shadow sports minister, Alison McGovern. Uh, is with us in the downtown den today and Ali um, as well as uh, of course being a sports fanatic and therefore being given almost her dream job of course Minister for Sport will probably be an even better one for her um, she's been a, a vocal um, progressive voice within the Labour Party so I'll be also asking her her views uh, on the leadership election of Keir Starmer, where she thinks that takes the Labour Party. Um, but before we get into the politics, um, we're going to get the, the bats and balls out and we're going to talk to Ali about all things sport. Good morning, Alison. Morning, Frank. Good to see you. It's good to see you. And I think this is a, a rather earlier start than, than we're used to. <laughs> uh, certainly for town den, but nonetheless a very popular event, despite that fact. And you know, first of all, congratulations uh, on the new job. Thanks. It is, as you said, like it's it's pretty much a dream role for me. Um, I like sports. Um, I, the only problem that I have is that. Um, I am the shadow sports minister, not the shadow football minister. And <laughs> um, football has played such a big part in my life that it, it, you know, I feel like I need to make sure that my range of sports is properly wide enough, not just. <laughs> yeah, I can, uh, I can imagine that's going to be. Uh, well, you, you know, I'm sure you'll you'll be able to brush up on the many other sports that you'll be. Uh, expected to engage with in I the actually, future months and uh, I actually like a lot of sports it's just I always end up talking about football <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to talk a bit about football today as you would imagine but there's other things to, to get into as well um, you say you know sort of a dream job and um, I won't name them but two former prime ministers when I asked them the question what job would you have liked to have been able to do uh, both said to me, and by the way, one was a Tory, um, both said to me, I'd love to have been Minister for Sport. Oh, and then Hayborn, of course, when he was Minister for Sport during the, the Blair government, uh, said to me he just couldn't believe his luck. Um, and he had uh, he had a whale of a time. But of course, the, the things that, that those guys enjoy most is attending live events meeting their sporting heroes and sporting legends. Uh, and at this moment in time, Ali, um, you're not able to do that. Um, so before we talk about the impact of the crisis on sport, just tell me what the day-to-day -day life of an MP is like at this moment in time when you're dealing with what must be an, an insurmountable uh, range of issues to do with the coronavirus crisis. Well, the first thing is, like everybody at the moment, you know, my, my life is one long video conference. And I think everybody's, you know, just trying to do as much of the job as they can, but in a different way. So 
um, you know, first thing in the morning, I'll meet my team, we'll run through what cases we've had in, what constituents have got in touch with us, what the big issues are. It seems to be coming in waves. So right at the start of this crisis, we had a massive wave of people worried about employment and their business. And then we got some of the business support um, stuff online and I and other MPs were really engaged in sort of making that as good as it possibly can be. And it's still not perfect, but I think we've come a long way. Then we had a wave of people who were stuck abroad. Um, so a lot of MPs have been trying to help get constituents back from far-flung places. I have learned just how far the people of the Wirral travel um, <laughs> through this. And then we've had actually really, really heartbreaking, very serious cases of a lot of constituents where they've got a loved one in hospital or in a care home. And for whatever reason, there's complications or that person needs more support or members of staff that need uh, protective equipment of other things so there's basically like different kinds of problems and we're just trying to work through them all there's a regular call between members of parliament and government ministers because if you think about members of parliament we're really like 650 field agents at the moment you know we can see all of the individual problems in our constituencies and our job is to work out what the structural underlying problems are, get them to government as quickly as possible and see if we can get them sorted out. So we, we're kind of listening to constituents, taking it to government and keeping that feedback loop going. So that's sort of like my first job. And then there's the virtual parliament, which has been a revelation um, for those of us on the progressive side of politics who always suspected that there was a different way of doing this whole House of Commons thing actually to see those screens go up in the commons and to have members of parliament being able to dial in through video conferencing from wherever they are in the country um, has been really you know a, a kind of silver lining to in a terrible situation and that means you know in the in the afternoon i may on you know if there's something that's relevant to me or i'm drawn for a question i'll be dialing into westminster and and doing that i'm also um still on treasury select committee for a bit, so yesterday we had scrutiny of the um, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, the number two minister in the Treasury. So there's, there's parliamentary work to do alongside casework, and then getting my head around the new job and uh, chatting and meeting meeting people, um, mainly not in person, unfortunately, uh, but trying to kind of think through some of the issues and and uh, you know there's a lot of challenges in sport at the moment. So it may not be quite the perfect moment to be taking over which would probably be like six months before you know some sort of like fantastic world cup or something like that but um uh yeah but it's an important moment and i relish the challenge mm. well let's get into that challenge then and talk about some of those difficulties that the world of sports is facing because uh similarly to the hospitality sector that is in uh, dire straits at the moment and are really worries about the future we have you know big economic animals such as the premier league formula one uh, wimbledon tennis tournaments being cancelled you know there's so many of these horse racing yeah there's so many spec yeah horse racing should have been cancelled a little bit before but we, we, we might get into <laughs> yeah. that later yeah um but you know, let, let's listen. Let's get the football out first because yeah. it's it's your passion, it's mine. But equally, 
Um, I think what people who perhaps not necessarily interested in football will appreciate is that the Premier League is one of, if not the most successful English export of modern times. Literally millions of people across the globe watch the Premier League of a weekend. And of course, that also boosts not just revenue into the country via all sorts of media outlets, but also enhances reputations of cities like Liverpool, like Birmingham, like Manchester, because football is such a key ingredient of what those cities have to offer. Now, I don't know if you saw Gary Neville's comments yesterday, Alison, and I know Gary, in terms of his football allegiances, are a million miles away from, from yours, but I don't think his politics are massively different from, from what I'd pick up. He actually was saying that he expected the sports minister to be right in the middle of the conversations with the Premier League as to when the league may resume or make a decision otherwise. Um, what's your take on, let's start with the Premier League and then talk about the wider football industry. Yeah, so I think you're, you're absolutely right. I have, I have been in a, in a street market in Ghana um, on, a, on a visit um, and like looked upwards to the television and, you know, it was a Premier League game that people were watching, you know, all of those thousands of miles away in Africa. It is, it is an incredible cultural force, the Premier League. Um, and so it's, it's complicated for the Premier League because they have all kinds of contractual and legal arrangements that this terrible crisis has cut in the middle of. And, you know, personally, I, when, it, when it comes to this, um, as you would expect, Frank, I am a cloppite in that <laughs> I do think Jürgen was right to say, all of that football is very 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 important to us but it doesn't matter in comparison to people's lives i think you know that is that is absolutely the right place to be but that said the premier league is both this amazing cultural force it has it is integrated into societies and towns in a way that it has a real impact on the economy if if you know, if we think about any um, big city in Britain, actually what, what happens with the football has a big impact on their hospitality um, uh, economy, um, on the visitor economy, on hotels and all the rest of it. So it's, it is really important e economically. So what should we do? Well, I think the first thing that has to be said is that um, people's health does come first and we need clarity. Now, right at the beginning of this crisis, I was a little bit unhappy that we didn't have clear messages coming from government um, right in the beginning when the evacuees came from Wuhan to the Wirral. And I think, unfortunately, whilst I'm massively supportive of the kind of broad government efforts and everything that's been done by the health service, I think, for, unfortunately, at particular stages, we have lacked government clarity over what the plan is and so that's why Keir Starmer and other people um, you know in politics I think have tried to push the government on what the exit strategy should be and that applies for the Premier League we need what we would call as a contingent exit plan so like once the government's tests are met what is it going to look like 
there's some absolutely crucial questions that I would expect top scientists to be looking at. Um, nobody expects us to go back to crowds of 50,000 anytime soon, of course not. But if we are gonna have games that could be broadcast, what are the scientific health-based constraints? And that those are the questions that I would expect people to be testing. Um, and those are the questions that I'll be raising with the sports minister and others. Being honest, I, I do agree with Gary Neville. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do. It's slightly hard to say that, but I do, I do. Actually, I think Gary Neville's probably, you know, as a pundit, he's actually really good. It's like, I guess Gary Neville's my guilty pleasure in football. <laughs> but um, but um, because the one thing that he pointed out that I think is really, really important is about incentives in that the Premier League is basically made up of these um, you know, big clubs, all with different contractual arrangements, all with slightly different financial situations. And then you've got the pyramid where clubs are in you know, very difficult and different situations. And when it comes to football there isn't really coordination i think people assume that football is a lot more organized than it actually is whereas the premier league run a competition the football league run a competition the fa run the grassroots and you know their their competitions like actually you do need somebody who can look across the whole of football and and talk to the premier league about how what they do might impact the rest of football and, and bring it all together and coordinate what they need with the health and scientific experts. So on this, though it pains me, I think Gary Neville's spot on. Mm -hmm. And you, you touch on the Premier League and, and then those lower division clubs. And again, I think there's an assumption the Premier League clubs are all filthy rich because of course all of the playing staff within all of those 20 clubs are literally earning millions of pounds a year but equally um, clubs such as Bournemouth and Burnley have indicated by the time of August September if this continues in the situation that we are now they're going to be in financial difficulties so the economics of football is not sane in my opinion perhaps there will be a reset button following this and, and we'll start to look at the game in a business from a business perspective slightly differently um, but the point I'm making really, Alison, is that outside of the top probably eight clubs, and I'm not talking about the top eight in the league, top eight clubs who have mm. got you know, multi-billion. Yeah, you know, the, the, after that, there's an awful lot of clubs out there and some names that may surprise one or two people that are going to be in genuine trouble if those contractual obligations somehow, some way are not met. That, that's right. So um, there's really, really good um, information on this. Um, there's there's um, the, the Deloitte um, football finances report that if people aren't aware of it, it's actually worth looking at because I think we do put Premier League football clubs in this bucket of organisations that, oh, well, they'll be fine because there's loads of money in football. And yes, there is, um, you know, revenue is high, but also costs are really high. So, you know, you don't need to be, um, you know, a vastly experienced business person to understand what that means, which is that 
when revenues are massively put at risk like this, actually the whole structure looks a lot more fragile than people might think, which is another reason why you need coordination because one principle that I think we should stick to through this is that no town or city or community should lose a loved sports team because of coronavirus. So whether it's, you know, I've met people from Bury um, who we went through that terrible experience of being thrown out um, of the football league and what's happened to their club. Real FC um, shut down recently because they couldn't pay their rent. And I think if you, once you do unpick the finances of it, you realise actually it's a lot more fragile than people might think. We need government to come forward with, with a plan how can we create a partnership in football to use this moment of crisis to make the whole structure more sustainable? Like, take for example, like we talk about the football pyramid, but actually, if you look at the finances of this, you've got the wealthiest Premier League clubs by revenue, then you've got the, the other clubs in, in the Premier League, you know, many of whom um, you know, have, have challenges of different kinds depending on the team. Then you've got the championship where the parachute payments are very influential in the finances. But actually, you then have quite, quite the cliff edge um, where, you know, the, the levels of revenue drop away really sharply. And I just asked myself a question, which is, is the money at the top of the game really filtering through? Because the government make an argument that that those finances at the top of the game trickle down the pyramid. Well, if you look at the finances of League One, League Two, and the non-league game, I'm not sure they do. So I think we should take this moment to say, okay, how do we work with League One, League Two clubs and the non-league clubs to say, is there a way that we can use a partnership with local government to make your finances more sustainable? These, you know, there are lots of clubs out there who do it well, there's some really, really good examples of clubs that are financially sustainable. So is there a way that we can learn from those that are doing it well and make the whole structure more sustainable? And if we could do that, again, it would be, it would be a silver lining out of what has been a very difficult time for football. I, I do think there will be a review of the way football has managed it. And I also, just before we leave the beautiful game and talk about many other aspects of sport that I want to get into this morning. Um, there's been a takeover in the Premier League of Newcastle United, uh, or a proposed takeover. And again, for many years now, there have been big question marks over this uh, terminology that is used of fit and proper person to run a football club. You've referenced Berry. Alison, we could go over the past decade and pick out owners who have not necessarily done the right thing by the football club that they own. And as you rightly say, you know, there's, it, it may, to people who are not interested or involved in the game of football in terms of supporters, you know, rightly or wrongly, there's a huge emotional attachment from many communities and football clubs are often at the heart of those communities. So it's a bigger impact than simply say, oh, well, a football club's gone bust, never mind. Do you think that the government should be more active in talking to the Premiership when you have, uh, and I don't want to get into any legalese here, because 
you know this is being broadcast live and recorded so and and you know these football owners have deeper pockets than even me Alison um but do you think that actually the government now has almost a moral duty to be saying to the football league the premier league you've got to tighten these rules because we do not want characters coming into our business community who've got the sort of track record that appears to be the case with the potential new owners of uh, Newcastle United. I'm not much fussed on the current owner of Newcastle United and his business practices, um, but you can actually get worse. Where do you stand on that? So I could bore for England on this subject because over the past 10 years, when I've been a member of parliament, this has been a constant. I mean, I, I became a member of parliament just as Liverpool got some new owners um, that were very controversial and, you know, we ended up um, in a complete mess, I would argue there. So I feel like the past 10 years have been a massive missed opportunity on this. The government could have helped football undo a lot of the um, bad systematic problems that put football clubs at risk. So the first issue on it's the owners and directors test as is now, which, is, which the Premier League managed through their, through their rule book. I think, you know, we could, we could literally spend hours, um, on, you know, on picking what's, what the problem is with that owners and directors test. And I think, you know, but basically the government should get more um, involved there in, you know, it, it is, football is our national game and I think they should work together with the Premier League um, and, and other governing bodies to improve that. There are, issues, there, are, there are issues like the football creditors rule, you know, about, you know, who gets paid when a football club does get into difficulties that lots of people in football have been unhappy with for a long time. And these... These issues just haven't been dealt with over the past 10 years. You know, whether it's, we had a select committee report from the, from the Culture and Sports Select Committee in 2011 that literally went through all these issues about football governance and asked the government to do something about it. And at that point, they were making warm noises that they were going to review it, and they said they would. You know, call it Brexit getting in the way or whatever, they never had. Anyway, we've got a new, you know, we've got a new uh, Tory sports minister now, um, Conservative government had in their manifesto a reform of football governance. So we're still kind of at the same point, and I will be putting a lot of pressure on the Conservative government to actually do what they've said that they were going to do for the past 10 years. Because they've literally, in December, got re-elected on a manifesto that said that they would do it. Um, and without going through all the details of, of the reforms, I think pretty much there's cross-party agreement on so much of this we just need to bring it forward and, and start to get it done. So I, I would anticipate that there will be a review over governance um, and that, that actually that on the Labour side and the Conservative side will be working quite closely together to get it right and to get it done. Um, I think when it comes to foot ownership in general, I'd go back to that very simple principle that I articulated before, which is, you know, when you... When you care about a sports team, yes, football, but also lots of other sports, rugby league, for example, is at massive risk at the moment. I worry about what's going on in the cricket because, you know, their season is absolutely going to be um, torn to shreds by this. So if you care, care passionately about a sport, it's not just 
that that's you know a leisure activity that you sort of do but you know you're not that fussed about it's your culture and your history and your heritage i mean my lovely granddad's ashes are sprinkled in the cop gold mouth you know this is like this is a massive thing in who we are as people and so should we allow clubs to just go under and that's just part of life i would say no so that implies that government has a responsibility to make sure it's governed right in the first place so collapse is prevented and to have a package of measures that it can um, implement if clubs are put at risk so that the local community can come together and figure out what they want to do and what their aspirations are for that sports team that's been at the centre of their, their town or their place. Now, if football's the national game, Alison, you've referenced there a number of other sports, cricket, um, horse racing, you mentioned earlier as well. Uh, I mean, the Liverpool International Tennis Tournament, which is something we've enjoyed for over a decade now, that's had to be cancelled. You know, so many of these sports and activities are going out of the window. The economics of those sports are not necessarily as large in some respects as football, but as you've indicated there, they're, they're equally important. And I suppose, not to lump them all together, but we can't go through every single sport individually because we would be here all day. Yeah. But at what point? What about that, climbing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, at what point, and this is a, a point that's sort of being made by some of the people who are, uh, are watching this morning, with us this morning, at what point do the economics begin to overtake the health implications of a return to sport and a return to to crowds and and i know that the 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 instinct within people like you and i ali would always be well people's health has got to come first but then you know there is increasing evidence to suggest that if lockdown continues if we are unable as human beings to go about our usual day-to-day -day activity then actually the health issues going forward may be even more serious than what we're dealing with with the pandemic. It's a difficult balance to strike, Ali. Where do you, do you sit in so, that? So it is, and I think that in politics, we often talk about being led by the science as if that was an easy thing to do. And it's just like, oh, well, we'll just get the science down off the shelf and we'll just <laughs> follow the road. It doesn't work like that. You know, it's all a balance. It's all a balance and and, we know that the impact on our health is complex of this situation. There is the extreme risk of the virus, and then there are the associated risks of us all, um, you know, having limited access to um, physical activity that we might otherwise wish to undertake. I think there's been some really worrying numbers about the impact on particularly kids from poorer backgrounds and the reduction in physical activity for them. Which has a which has a knock-on impact, doesn't it? Um, you know, if you're growing up in a in an environment where you maybe live in a housing um, situation where you don't have loads of access to to green space nearby, that has a that has an impact on people that I'm very worried about right at this moment. Um, speaking purely personally, um, I've been having this sort of like um, you know conversation with myself if somebody could bring back the football for me to watch or, the, or my football teams that I play in which would I want first watching or playing yeah. um, 
I think I'd go for playing because I know that we're probably, because of the safety element, more likely to get like football without fans that we can all watch first. But actually, I think the thing that I really miss is turning round on a Thursday night with my mates from Wirral Valkyries FC and, you know, like having a laugh. And I think that's the thing about sport that really has kept me going over the past few years, you know, being able to turn up and, and you know, my friends who I play football with sort of, they don't really talk to me about politics that much, but it's having that physical activity and the camaraderie that goes along with it that we're all really missing at the moment, and that has an impact. So I think what we have to do is be realistic about the science and people's health and people's lives come first. But I say again, this is why we need a practical exit plan, contingent on meeting trigger points where we know that activity is safe to do how will we um, come out of this situation in a way that we can mobilize those things that will be really good for us first so um, one thing we haven't talked about um, as much is grassroots physical activity like I think that you know councils have, have had a really um, powerful experience I think of understanding just how important their parks and their their open spaces are. So how can we mobilize that knowledge and understanding to, as we move out of this situation, to get people doing even more physical activity and making the most of, you know, just, just the green spaces around them. I think we've, we've learned how important that is to people and how crucial some of those local authorities are, you know, in, in a sort of world where they've had to deal with austerity for 10 years. Actually, I think people have learned how important green open spaces are, grassroots sports activity. So I would like to see the government bring forward a plan for that so that we know at that point where it's safe to do so, that we can use our open spaces and our grassroots sporting facilities to really give people a good chance to get active again and to, to feel that positive mental health benefit of getting active. And I think, you know, we would all echo that we would want to uh, see sport at any level uh, back as quickly as as possible. Um, you know, you, as you said, have daily briefings with government ministers. Um, we watch the press conference. Well, some of us continue to watch the press conferences, uh, but they're becoming increasingly uh, mundane, I think, because they, they tend to, to not say anything much different um are you getting a sense that the government are moving towards some sort of strategy post lockdown yesterday we asked this question of the chief secretary to the treasury and um, myself and my fellow treasury select committee members um and and he he wouldn't be drawn but he said that the prime minister would announce something in the coming days so i do get the impression that that they are moving towards that you never know with, with the government, you know, they can be pretty tight-lipped until they're ready to um, say publicly what it is they're planning. But we did push him quite hard and, and the Chief Secretary was sort of holding back, but basically intimating that we could hear more, we would hear more about that in, in the days to come. Okay, let's move the conversation on. And the influence of sport, as you've said, touches communities and, you know, those emotional attachments and the enjoyment that we get from sport it is fantastic. 
Um, but the other area of um, our community that sport has started to have a huge influence on in recent times it is business and leadership and management. And so many business organisations now are looking to the successful sports clubs and sports organisations and leaders, such as your own manager, Jurgen Klopp, um, to actually take tips and tricks of their motivational abilities and their managerial styles to bring into uh, the world of business. And so our sponsors this morning, for example, VSI Executive Education, they take people from the world of sport, but also now the world of business and talk through some of those experiences that sports people face, because very often their challenges can be quite unique, but can be replicated in terms of a business uh, situation. Now, I know, Alison, on two aspects of this, really, from, from your personal perspective. One is that you are um, hugely key to see businesses thrive and grow uh, across the UK. And so, you know, how uh, do you think, again, we can perhaps get better at that cooperation and collaboration between sports and business and learn those lessons? And again, you know, you touched on it earlier. Sports itself is perhaps not the best managed sort of sector and industry uh, when it comes to the business side of things. So is there anything we can do to, to put those two things together and get a, a good result and a positive outcome? The other thing that BSI have been particularly uh, successful at, and again, I know this is a passion of yours, is to actually start to begin to encourage more women into executive roles within the, the, the world of sport. Uh, and again, both in terms of a participatory level and in terms of getting those leaders into sports and organisations, I know that female agenda is something close to your heart. So pick those two points up for me, if you will. I will. I mean, let me let me say three things. Um, firstly, I think athletes have an incredible mindset. Mm. I think to be an athlete, you have to win physical battles but the mental battles you have to win almost are tougher. And I'm seeing that at the moment, actually. I was listening to Five Live um, interview um, some athletes who were planning for the Olympics. Um, and, and they were talking to them about how you reset. When you've been, when you've been working for that moment, that, that point where you're going to try and achieve your goal, and then that chance is taken away from you, how do you reset and recalibrate your goals? Um, and that is the most incredible resilience that actually for anybody um, in the political world or business world um, or in, in any other arena where you face challenges, developing that resilience, I think we all know is, is an absolutely um, crucial, crucial skill that you just, you can't succeed without. So I think the idea that sport has a lot to teach us, I think is right. Um, and I think it has a huge amount to teach us in terms of mindsets and mental health, really. We know on the flip side that it, within sport that without those, like without that mental strength as well as the physical strength, um, you know, people can get all kinds of problems well. And, um, you know, I think that within, within that kind of... Um, passion that we all have for physical activity. I think it's really interesting to reflect on, 
on what it give, the interaction between the physical health and the mental health. And I know that is something that um, my predecessor as a Labour Shadow Minister for Sports and now Shadow Minister for um, Mental Health, Rosanna Allen Khan, um, has talked a lot about. And, uh, you know, it, it's an important lesson for us all. You, you need to be physically healthy, but also be constantly thinking about how you approach your own thoughts and feelings to make sure that you're mentally healthy too. Um, so we have a huge amount to learn. Now, from a from a business point of view, I think that I've I, I we've talked about the governance issues in football. Yes. On the other hand, I would also point to the huge amounts of um, small and medium-sized businesses in and around sports that do really well and show incredible innovation actually in uh, using um, sports, whether it's um, mobilizing different apps and things like that from a from a fan perspective um, people who want to get involved in sports and um, we've seen a lot of innovation in terms of the, the that the kind of fan community or or whether it's just like the the hospitality and the and the other aspects in and around sport there's a lot of SMEs that I think do really well and I think we could learn from their innovation um, and how they've used people's passion for sports to make credible businesses that are doing things differently. I think we could learn there as well. So I think there's a huge amount of positive in innovation that's going on around sport that has a lot to, that, that the rest of the economy has a lot to, has a lot to learn from. But, you know, technology is one thing. I mean, there's, fa there's fascinating insights into, into people's health and how you improve people's health through the innovation that's come from sport in relation to nutrition and you know people's physical health and i really think we'd kind of make the most of that as a country and take take some of those learnings you know and 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 use them to work out how we make the country as a whole more healthy um speaking of which making the country as a whole more healthy um women um i mean sport has a checkered history <laughs> Uh, in, incred, incredible, incredible women, but um, but unfortunately also like moments of, of um, you know not great uh, things things for women really, and we're seeing a bit of that now. Um, a small club AFC filed, but they they announced that they're disbanding their women's team uh, as a result of coronavirus, which is devastating. Um, and we've had some pretty bad situations in different different parts of the women's game in football um, but equally there does seem to be a momentum around women's sport so I would say it's in the balance at the moment of what whether we can come out of the coronavirus um, crisis and continue that momentum going with women's sport or whether you have a moment like there's been moments in our history um, with women's sports, so like the, the FA um, ban, um, you know, was, was a real moment in, in women's sport that kind of set us back decades that it's taken years and years and years to recover from. You know, will this be a moment where women's sport is cut off at the knees or will we come back stronger? I think it's in the balance at the moment. I take inspiration from um you know women leaders like baroness sue campbell who runs women's football for the fa she previously ran um the uk youth sport trust which did a lot of the um activities for young people 
in and around the Olympics. And she's an incredible leader who's managed to carve out a place for women's football in what is an incredibly male-dominated environment. And so, so I think there are brilliant women leaders um, in sport. And we have to kind of take our inspiration from them and try and make this the moment where we maintain that momentum, but also we build that stronger. And we say, actually, we, want, we do want more equal um, sporting life after this crisis. Okay. Um, I, I'm conscious that we've got a number of questions that I've been text. Uh, and also, obviously, a couple of people have, uh, have typed into the chat uh, room. And please, if you've got a, a question to put to, to Alison, um, do type your question then we'll try and get to it. So final point from me, Ali, um, got uh, some members from, from Birmingham with us this morning. And of course, they are looking forward to the Commonwealth Games. Um, now, let's forget about the crisis. We won't get into the timing of that and what impact that may have. Um, both you and I have been fortunate enough to, to live in a city um, or a city region that has benefited usually from a big event, and that was European Capital of Culture for Liverpool back in 2008. We also saw, uh, almost firsthand, the positive impact that the Commonwealth Games had on Manchester. And then, of course, as a country, um, we had the Olympics in London, which was a fantastic experience and also did an awful lot in terms of a more deprived part of London economically, as well as offering us that showcase for our sporting talent. So given the fact that you've, you know, you've watched some of those events, you've been involved in some of those events, what would be the sort of things that you think Brummies should be looking forward to in terms of opportunities and legacy from their Commonwealth Games? Um, so, yes, definitely. Um, all, all of the things that you mentioned, Frank, um, just have absolute amazing lessons in how these big events can can change um people's people's perceptions um of a place and their experience of the place um i think there are some really important principles with events like this that make them not just a kind of glitzy um event that happens and then is gone but can really be a be a shift in terms of the way a place is is seen and experienced. Um, I should say I love Birmingham, by the way. Um, uh, I really enjoy visiting there. I, I, I remember um, about 15 years ago going on a city break um, to Birmingham because I'd never been to Villa Park. And I really, really wanted, I don't know why, but there's certain grounds, you know, certain football grounds, like I've yeah. never been to St. James's Park, I really want to go there. And like, never been to Villa Park, really want to go. So I went on a little city break to Birmingham. And I mean, the football wasn't perhaps the best football I've ever seen in the world, but the experience of Birmingham itself as a city, as a place to visit, was incredible, brilliant, friendly. Um, so my hope, first and foremost, is that more people in the UK, but around the world, will get to know Birmingham um, even more than they already do. And I, I think Birmingham has, you know, has a lot to offer, and it comes from a strong, strong place on that. Um, but there's important, some important principles. So inclusion, I think, is a really important thing. Uh, I think the Olympics did it well. Um, my experience of the London Olympics um, was that they set up some principles about um, making sure that apprenticeships um, were, were a win, making sure that jobs 
um, outside that were a win for the people who were, you know, who were surrounded by that Olympic village. Um, making sure that the way that the contracting was done actually really got to small business. Um, and, and I think they had that, they had that principle of inclusion from, from the word go. Um, and that really worked. So I, I would say that's that's an important one, being clear about how it's an inclusive games and that everybody everybody in, in Birmingham feels the benefit, whether whether or not they are living right on top of it or whether they live right the other side of the West Midlands, making, making sure that people feel a part of it, I think is really important. And I know that city leaders in, in Birmingham will be wanting to think about those principles of inclusion. Um, and the, the, other, the other thing I say is, is, is legacy. The reason why for us in Liverpool City Region, the reason why 2008 we feel all warm and fuzzy when we think about it isn't necessarily because of, I mean, I can remember particular events of things I did in 2008 that were wonderful. But the reason why I think about it is because it was a turning point for us. Um, you know, I moved to London to be a student in um, 1999. And when I said to people I was from um, Merseyside, they used to look at me as if to say, never mind. <laughs> um, or like, it's all right, you've escaped. You know, never, oh. If, by 2008, when I said where I was from, there was only one question that anybody asked me. And that was, do you know a good hotel? Do you know, I'm going up there, any good restaurants you'd like to recommend? And so that legacy of 2008 of us becoming from a place that people were embarrassed to talk about and they didn't really want to visit or invest in to us becoming a place um, that people were really interested in and wanted to talk about. There was a long legacy of that and, we, and I would argue we're still in it. Um, that it really changed perceptions and so I, I would say the really important thing I, I, as I say I love Birmingham I think it's an absolutely fantastic place I really really love going to Birmingham and I would just hope that um, you know I don't think Birmingham's in any way in the same position that Liverpool was in um, for many years at all but I would hope that this this is the moment where Birmingham really has this fantastic international reputation and we can really say how wonderful Birmingham is for many years to come and it will be that key in the lock of of the reputation and I think that's where uh, it's, sport is great sport is just great um, and, and the Commonwealth Games will be wonderful but it will I will hope it will have this bigger impact and uh, I really look forward to being a part of it. Okay thanks for that and uh, listen you've said what a great city Birmingham is. We can concur with that. We absolutely love the place, obviously. But um, equally, I know whilst you were uh, on the Treasury Select Committee, yeah, I know you still are at the moment, but you'd agreed to, to come up to, uh, to Birmingham or down to Birmingham and do, uh, do an event for us. So with your new hat on, uh, I'm going to keep you to that and we'll get you to Birmingham as soon as... Any the, excuse, any as, excuse. As soon as we can. And, yeah. uh, and I don't know when the last time you were there, but it, it, I mean, it just is one of those cities that you can actively see transforming, yeah. you know, it, it's fantastic. In terms I, of, I, was, I was there in December and I really, yeah. I really like it. You're doing a great job. Uh, I feel Birmingham's one of those places where... Um, I don't know why, but there's certain cities where, as somebody who kind of grew up in and around Liverpool, there's certain cities where I just feel at home. 
Yay. You know, like obviously Glasgow, whatever. But Birmingham's just one of those places. People are friendly in Birmingham. Like, if if you don't know where you're going, someone will say to you, "Oh, you know, it's up, it's this way." I just feel it's got that friendliness that I really enjoy. Yeah. Right. We've had a couple of questions that were emailed over to us yesterday, so let's try and get through a few of these. Uh, Maggie Alfonsi says, do you think there will be a new norm for sports in terms of audience attendance and participation once the lockdown is over? And therefore, do you think there'll be a greater challenge for sports that involve a lot of contact, such as rugby union? I do think that's one of the biggest um, challenges. I think that, um, you know, be, be, being blunt, um, I think we all understand that we couldn't have crowds, but where you've got contact sports, it's that balance of risks that the health specialists will have to determine. Um, and I, being honest, you know, we don't want to put any participants at, at risk because, you know, we all want sport back. But if in doing so, you um, if in doing so, you do it in a way that puts participants at risk, I think that would be a step too far. And anyway, it would be counterproductive. Because if you, you know, made the situation worse by doing that, I think it, you know everybody would feel um, terrible. So I think it does it does make the situation worse. Um, I think there are all kinds of ways in which we do want it this crisis to kind of lead out into a, a new normal. I've mentioned women's sport and making sure that the momentum is increased, if anything, and definitely not curtailed. Um, so I think that there's a range of ways in which we this is this should be a moment for reform in sport. Um, and not uh, retrenching. Okay, thank you. Um, right, this one's from Clive Briggs from Reward Finance Group. Surely any mainstream sporting event behind closed doors or otherwise will require the attendance of key medical personnel, such as doctors, paramedics, etc. Et and he's questioning whether uh, this is the most sensible use of their skills at this time. I think that's that's an obvious yeah. point, Ali, isn't it? But Def definitely, definitely not. Definitely not. I mean. It, you know that this is exactly the point like we we've got to take into account all of these factors before going ahead um and yeah like it's a it's it's going to be it has to be at the moment where we know that we can do it safely um and it's one of the reasons why we mustn't lose sight of, of grassroots because actually um you know what i think we've really learned as i was saying before about how much people do value their grassroots physical activity and if we can do that safely as and when as and when we can you know that will give people a chance to to experience sports you know but by participating and final question from um our participants this morning then i'm going to finish off with uh, getting back into more general politics um here's a solution to the premier league football crisis perhaps um from our very own jim hancock who you uh like me know and love very well hello jim jim is saying that um a solution perhaps would be to announce that the premier league would return in march of next year but to finish the current season uh, which would then fall quite nicely actually in terms of uh, the timing and logistics uh, and then obviously the following season could begin again in august i'm sure there's lots of different scenarios being looked at but uh, that's one solution that Jim's suggesting. Yeah, I think what what that points to is actually the Gary Neville uh, problem, is that 
I've, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of chat going around about what the best solutions would be. None of us have oversight over all the contractual and legal complexities about what the what is in the realm of the possible. But the problem with on the football side is that you have a lot of participants and a lot of interests, but nobody who takes an overarching view and looks at it from the point of view of the interests of the public. And that's where the government should be taking a more leading role. Government can't fix it. They haven't got a magic wand, but they could take a more um, a role more coordinating all the different participants and look at this with the um, interests of the public in their mind, rather than any one participant in the conversation where, you know, the Premier League has to look after the Premier League, the EFL has to look after the EFL, the clubs are kind of looking after their own situation. And so I think that's where we do need as Gary Neville said, can't believe I'm quoting him again, <laughs> a bit more uh, proactivity from, from the government on that question. Okay. Right, Ali, I'm going to sort of start to wind the session up now, but I don't want to let you go without asking you about the Labour Party's new leadership. Um, I, I think that people are aware of your politics. You were uh, uh, the chair of um, uh, an organisation called Progress which for those who don't know, is not, is not the most pro-Corbynista uh, organisation within the Labour Party. Nonetheless, uh, I always felt that you uh, struck a, a very solid balance between uh, being constructively critical of some of the things the party did under his leadership and being loyal to that leadership. Um, listen, we've moved on. We're in a different town. The party's got a new leader. Um, what are your sort of hopes, aspirations for Labour with Keir Starmer at the helm, uh, accepting and acknowledging, as I'm sure you do, that the party has got a huge mountain to climb if it's to get back to being seen as a credible alternative government? Well, two points. Firstly, at, the mo at this moment in time, our job is to serve the country. And that means doing the thing that I was talking about at the beginning, which is um, assessing where there is a gap between what needs to be done to respond to this virus outbreak and what we know the government are doing and mobilizing the resources of communities and the government to meet that gap. So I think we're seeing that at the moment on the challenge with testing. Um, there are a bunch of us, myself, um, Liz Kendall, um, Jonathan Ashworth and others, who for many, many years have talked about the chronic problems in the fragmented um, system that we have for social care, for care homes and for domiciliary care. And we are seeing those problems played out right now. So I think the job of the opposition at the moment is to try and describe those problems, to listen to people on the front line, describe them and to try and um, encourage and help where necessary um, the government to attend to those challenges. That is, that is our job at this moment um, and you know I think we've I think we've seen some some success in in getting movement from the government on things that we should be doing as the opposition we will always reserve the right to be to be critical um, in in the face of this terrible outbreak it will be constructive criticism so that we can make sure that um, we do the best job for the country um, as a whole it's a very strange situation, therefore, I think, to be taking over for, for Keir as a, as a new leader of the opposition. It's, 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 it's weird to have him stood on his own doing Prime Minister's questions. It just, it's an odd 
but on the other hand on the other hand it's not the biggest problem we've got as a country right now so we're just getting on with it um i think it in the longer term i think the labor party and the, and the labor movement and labor voters have got a view about how they the, they'd like the country to go i think they've got a view about having a more inclusive country um and having a country where there's more, more opportunities for people and where some of the problems that have been created by the past 10 years are addressed and we'll get into that there, there will be time to get into that view that we have about a different country we'd like to see built um but right now we need to just focus on on the crisis and, and helping the country through that um i think Keir's doing a fantastic job being honest i think it's incredibly difficult but I worked a lot with him over Brexit in his role as shadow Brexit secretary, and that was not an easy thing either. And what I learned about Keir during that period was that if there were problems, he was always the first person to pick up the phone and say, how do we fix this? What, t t tell, me, tell me what the issue is here. Like, how, how do we move forward? Um, and, and I see that now. I see that characteristic in him now that he's is a kind of practical politician who's interested in how we can move things forward and how we can get to that vision of a better country that we have so i think he's he's an incredible person to have in in the job um, especially now and uh, my experience over the past five years has been he's a good person to work with and i'm you know i have appreciated um doing so in the past and, and it's good to be working with him now Thanks for that uh, analysis. I mean, I think that, you know, wherever your politics, um, people uh, want genuinely to see a strong government and a strong opposition, an opposition that can genuinely hold the administration to account. And although it's early days, what I've seen from Keir Starmer is that uh, very measured way in which he's identifying some of the issues uh, and putting those points to the government in a constructive way, as you say. Uh, going forward, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how he handles what inevitably will become a more combative um, style of, uh, of debate in the future. And, uh, you know, as a, as a very top, top barrister, I can't imagine him being phased by that. So I, I am looking forward to, to return to normality, if I can put it that way. Listen, Ali, it's... Yeah. I think I think it's a been it's been a weird one because I do think that virtual parliament's really good. Um, on the other hand, it is kind of it does feel weird, and uh, I never thought I'd miss Westminster as much as I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I I will remind you of a time not that long ago actually when you were phoning me up saying it here in London because I'm fed up in here and it's doing my head in, uh, but things have moved on and. Uh, yeah. And I suppose, change. yeah, be careful what you what you wish for yeah. us. Listen, as always, great to speak to you. Um, some real insight into your new job, which we appreciate. I know you're still getting to grips with some of the issues around that job. And, and equally, you've got lots of other things to do as a constituency MP as well. Um, so we do value and appreciate your time this morning, Ali. So no problem. Hopefully, as I say, we'll see you in Birmingham and other places uh, shortly at a live event.